Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Modest, Achievable, and Sustainable, we are joined by Thomas Curran, Superior of the Jesuits at Regis College, the coordinator of JPEN, the Jesuit Prison Education Network, and the former president of Rockhurst University, who shares his experiences teaching in carceral settings. Welcome back to the Twice Over podcast. We are so happy to be continuing our partnership with Conversations Magazine and that our collaboration with Conversations Magazine has brought us into conversation with Tom Curran. Father Tom Curran is a member of the Jesuit order. He is the superior of the Jesuits at Regis College right now and we're talking to him in his role as coordinator for JPEN, which is the Jesuit Prison Education Network, which is based now in Denver, Colorado, where he lives. Father Curran is also the former president of Rockhurst University, and that's where I believe he got started in prison education. Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on the Twice Over podcast. It's lovely to meet you. It's great to visit with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Good to be with you both. Look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in prison education? Certainly. So I I was, as you mentioned, on staff at Rockhurst in Kansas City for 16 years. And while I was there, as all of us involved with Jesuit education or trying to read the signs of the times to meet people where they are, act accordingly, and clearly attentive to the social issues, such things as, as wealth stripping, predatory lenders, that sort of thing. And so we, we started a prosperity center. It helps to address that. That's the only one of its kind on a college campus where it provides people assistance with financial literacy, bankruptcy issues and things. But there's also another issue that clearly plagues all of us and very much concerns all of us and concern me as well as this mass incarceration the notion that we have five percent of the world's population in the united states but yet we have almost a quarter of the world's incarcerated and that and why is that is that working for us it was ken parker who was deriving the program and started the program with mary gould at st louis university in 2008 in prison education called PET Prison Education Program to provide associate degrees, GED, and some programs in art. Ken had approached me probably, not probably exactly, I remember in December of 2014, saying that he heard that I was open to this. Father Larry Biondi, the president of St. Louis University at this time, encouraged him to have a conversation with me. So Ken reached out and said, Tom, there are, we talked about mass incarceration and its ineffectiveness. And shared with me, there's 21 correctional facilities in Missouri. Many of them are for men and two are for women. In 2008, they started the program in St. Louis University, and now they were being asked to expand that into a women's league. There being only two, the closest one to them was several hours away, but there was one just two hours, or there is one just about two hours from Rockers called Chillicothe. So we talked for quite a while and, and agreed to continue that conversation and agreed to partner to see if that was possible. So with Ken and others, along with Elena Boyles, who was their warden at the time at Chillicothe, uh, we just had a whole series of conversations and bringing people up. Is this possible? Meeting with the Department of Corrections and what this would look like. And my whole focus was that I did not want us to get into this unless we could sustain this. I did not want to set this up so that 
sets people up for failure. So my mantra early on was and continues to be, what can we do that's modest, achievable, and sustainable? Modest, achievable, and sustainable. And that continues to be driving force of that. So how did that work out? Chillicothe Women's Facility, Chillicothe, Missouri. We've heard the expression, best thing since sliced bread. That's where it comes from. No uh, way. I kid you not. So a gentleman in Iowa developed this machinery to slice bread and he couldn't give it away, but comes down to M- Missouri and a baker there convinces this baker. And so in the 1920s, he gives him this little mechanism that slices bread, like they say, and the rest is history. So the town prides itself on being the best thing since sliced bread. Anyway, in addition to being the best thing since sliced bread, this little town has a state facility for women of about 1,400 women and a maximum security prison. And so started having conversations there and going back and forth and what would this look like? And so then over the next couple of years, then pivotal, a significant moment was in, at Rutgers, we started each academic year with something known as all companions gathering. So we refer to one another as companions in the Ignatian tradition, that we are so much compañeros, right? We're all com- companions. Named the program in Chillicothe, Companions in Chillicothe. That's and lovely. We, I love that. Yeah. It's so a good word, right? I mean, the word companion is really elegant and so respectful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's right. And it's, it's rooted in who we say we are. So calm pun, right? Calm with pun bread. What do we do? There's nothing more sacred, if you will, than to sit at the table and to share bread with them, to share conversation and to engage in that life with one another. Wanted to test the waters. This was something that I wanted to do. Others were talking about on campus. So I don't know, all companions gathering at Rockhurst shared this notion with folks and hey, would there be any interest? And hoping for a handful. At the end of that, we had some 42 faculty and staff that came and said, yes. Let me help. Uh, I'm interested. I'm very interested. And so then over the next year or so, we roll this out so that now, seven years later, it is a program where we have a cohort of women and the cohort of staff. They have now completed 14 college credits, 43 credit hours, and they are on track to receive an Associate of Arts from Rockhurst in 2024. That's uh, awesome. Congratulations. That's a well, real achievement. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. It's good. But I, my role has been as a companion. I've taught a couple times. Craig Watts is the current director. Craig, criminal justice, retired FBI director, recruited Craig to come on and say, okay, Craig, I want you to direct this as well. And Craig and I taught a class together, Father Brian Frey and I, and we, gosh, we probably know. Yeah, we've had some 15 plus faculty members that have been involved with this. And so we really has been transformative. People say, gosh, this is great, you know, what you're doing for. But in our Jesuit understanding, this is not what we're doing for. This is what we're truly doing with, right? This is not to be considered some act of just goodness or charity. This is mutual transformation. Every professor, every teacher that has been involved with this, and everyone that I brought to Chillicothe and other facilities, which I'll talk about in a moment, they all say this, is, this was transformative. So to have the first professor, Dan Martin, incredible English prof, chair of the English department, Dan was the first teacher, English comp, during the course asking Dan how it was going, and he just said it was just incredible. He said, this is, has to be one of the most transformative experiences of my teaching career, Tom. And then he stopped himself and he said, no, I'm going to change that. This is one of the most transformational experiences of my life. Wow. And that is pretty consistent. 
with what we hear, right? Folks say, gosh, these students are hungry. They read every one of the footnotes. They read every one of the questions. They come prepared. They're incredible students. It was my desire from early on that we not refer to them as <clears throat> offenders or incarcerated. I realize that's the language of the DOC, but it worked pretty hard to say, can we refer to them as students? Yes. There are students. And they said, well, think about that. I said, well, yeah, I really want you to think about that. Just we'll provide you t-shirts. And, and, and that is not insignificant on several levels. One, as we all recall, right? Getting ready for school, you have your school clothes or your school uniform, and you put on a clothing to give you a certain mindset. So yes. this three or four hours a week, by wearing your Rockhurst t-shirt, I'm not thinking about being an offender or incarcerated. I'm thinking about being a student. And that, that was significant for the students there because as in many jurisdictions, just about all jurisdictions, you're limited in terms of your inventory of clothing, books, every possession. So they know how many t-shirts, how many pieces of underwear, socks, belts, everything. So in order to give someone a t-shirt, something might have to come out of their wardrobe. It's really saying, yes, I embrace this because this is part of my identity. And the students said to me, this is like gold. One student said to me, I never put this in the dryer. This is one of my most prized possessions. And you think, wow, what's this all over a $15 or $20 t-shirt? What is it? It's all about a gesture of sharing our shared human dignity, our shared humanity. And that's really what this is all about, is it practicing your shared humanity. So making some progress with this. And then Father Tom Green, the provincial of the UCS province, of which I'm a part, and I started having conversations about next step. And said, Tom, this is a priority for you, but needs to be a priority for, for us as a province. And this is the desire of mine. I'd like you to become a coordinator for this and to engage the other institutions of higher ed, of which there are six in our province, about this forming a network. And so in January of 2022, uh, when we had our annual meeting with the president's provost, mission folks, uh, provincial and superiors, we launched this JPEN saying, yes, let's do this together. Let's do this together for the purposes of the best practices. How do we want to apply for Pell? How does one, how does one fundraise for this? How can we support one another in this? How can we do that? So now today, there are seven Jesuit institutions that are aligned with a prison. So wow. you, have Mark, you have Georgetown University, there's Marquette, Scranton just launched theirs this past year, Loyal in New Orleans this past fall, Regis last spring, and of course, Rockhurst and St. Louis University. And just you know, a week, I'll be down in Belize at St. John's, and we'll be spending a couple of days there in their facility. So we meet, we Zoom with one another, we're planning our first national conference next year in St. Louis which will celebrate the 15th anniversary of St. Louis's starting of PEP. In a couple of days, I will speak before the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities Presidents because they want to know about this JPEG. How do you do this? And again, it's what can we do that's modest, achievable, and sustainable? We are not boiling the ocean here. We have one cohort of some 20 women students in Chillicothe and about 15, 16 guards or staff. Similarly, there's three cohorts at Loyola New Orleans, two, two of the students and one of the staff. And my job as coordinator is not to tell you how to do this as much as how do we assist you and how do we learn from one another. Here at Regis University, they're doing a certificate of college readiness 
So they're basically providing 18 credit hours for courses, and you get the certificate of college readiness from Regis University that is transferable. So it's portable. You can bring that to Regis to bring the classes. You can take that to another institution. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like when you go into these facilities? Let me go to a most recent experience where I went to the Colorado Ter- Territorial Correctional Facility, which is in Canyon City, a couple hours south of Denver. It's called Territorial because as you go into this, and it's surrounded by these majestic Rocky Mountains, right? But you go into this facility that's clearly quite sobering. It's marked that it was open in 1871. That's significant because Colorado does not become a state until 1876. So mm-hmm. clearly, for the territory, they wanted a prison before they became a state, which speaks to our priorities, but more on that later. So into the facility we go and have this commencement exercise. And the young man, Jason Bundra, is the commencement speaker for Regis. And now Jason will be there. He's been there 17 years. He'll be there the rest of his life. And he acknowledges that it was a heinous crime. And But here's what Jason said as part of his address. Today, I wear the clothes, the gown that show me where there's hope and what I can be. But they cover the garments I wear every day, which reflect the worst mistake and the worst day of my life. After the ceremony, we were given a chance to have some conversation. I said, Jason, Tell me more about why Regis. There are other schools here. Why did you choose Regis? And he said, so I work in the license plate department. We make license plates. And I come across this license plate that reads, Regis University, men and women in service to others. And I'm like, what's that? And I start to investigate and find out that this is a Jesuit university and this whole notion of companionship and service. And that's the school I want to be a part of. Since then. This young man, just extraordinary intellect, a philosopher, said to me, no, I'm sold on this Jesuit way of proceeding. Um, and I should share with you, I'm an atheist. <laughs> that, that, right. That's just one story. I'm thinking about what you said about what we wear and who we are, right? And yes. academic yes. robes and the vestments that you wear when you're serving at a mass or at a sacrament for someone, the collar, the prison uniform, right? And how the clothing that we wear communicates to the world something about who we are, but also who we can be, were, who we have been. And it's so powerful to think about what he said, because I want to believe that the outer garment, the academic robe is maybe a truer representation than what he said, the inner garment, the prison uniform, because inside both of those garments are the man, right? The person. That's That's absolutely true. And as we as in the Christian tradition, right, we we call the letter to the Colossians, put on the garment of Christ. And what is it to put on the garment of Christ? It's to recognize our shared humanity, because all of this, in my estimation, is when we talk about rehabilitation, is it working well in the department in the efforts of our justice, we consider it a success when someone is released from prison and if they've not committed a crime for three years, if they, what they say, desist in committing a crime for three years, then it's considered a statistical success. Okay. That's pretty low threshold and pretty sad, right? And is it partially due or is it mainly due to the fact that we're not in the business of rehabilitation. Let's be honest, we're in the business of warehousing. 
Yes. We're not about focus upon a conversion. The conversion that needs to be focused upon is not a conversion to a particular religion. It's a conversion to humanity. It's truly a conversion to humanity, recognizing that we see one another as human. Now, you could say someone's committed a crime. Someone's committed a serious crime. Someone's committed a murder. Yes, but no one act should define and should diminish the fact that we remain human. The perpetrator of the crime, we who have incarcerated, as well as the victim, the family's victim, do we not have an obligation to one another to recognize our shared humanity and bring folks back into the community? That, that, so sorry to be preachy about that. You know, we're all educators, right? And educators believe in the possibility of human transformation and that's human right. improvement. Yeah. And that's part of why I think prison education is exciting, so important. It's such a shame that we haven't invested more of our energy in thinking about it because for all of the reasons that you're describing. So I get the opportunity to, in traveling, to be with it other directors then to say, hey, can I go and spend a day or two? And of course, there's a whole protocol and security there. And now I'm working on my my second VIC, a volunteer in, in corrections ID, so that I can't just walk in, but I can go and spend the time there as a visitor and teach a class. So most recently was over at St. Louis University and there in Bonterre, the facility that St. Louis University has been involved with now for 15 years. I had the opportunity to speak to a couple hours with a class and wanted to hear from them what this notion of companionship, Jesuit education, and really spoke about how St. Louis University is a part of a network and gave them the map and showed them, okay, when you hear something about the Final Four, Gonzaga, Georgetown, or this, that, that's us. That's all of us. You're part of, that's part of our world. You're, you are a student of St. Louis University. You are a Jesuit product. You are a companion we are in this together. And that resonates. And so what do I hear from the students? You saved my life. You saved my life. You're saving our life. And my response to that is perhaps, but I think it's more adequately expressed if we are saving one another's lives. Why are we in the prisons? We have to be. Why did we get in education? Ignatius agreed to that in 1548. There was a need, right? And so there's a need here. The need is not just to do education in the prison. The need is for us, for our transformation, to, for us to come to an understanding of our shared humanity. That's, that, to me, is why we're there, and how can we do that? Again, we're not boiling the ocean here, but what can we do that's modest, achievable, and sustainable? So there I am in Bonterre, who's a young man who's, again, going to spend the rest of his life, Keith, in, in, in Bonterre, uh, again, off the charts bright. A heinous crime. And we're talking philosophy, him in the class. And at the end of it, he sends me additional reflections on, on, on Plato and Aristotle. Just, just knock your socks off, which is really, any teacher would love this. But here's the other piece he shared with me. He entered Bonterre as a white supremacist. And now he's embracing this understanding of his humanity and his commitment to others. And he is, shall I say, a rock star among the others there in the way they look to him and he models. Yeah, that's just another story of a transformation. I could go on and on, but one more. Let's go to the other side of the state. Okay. Chillicothe, Missouri. Chillicothe, Missouri. So our companions in Chillicothe, the best thing since sliced bread. And there, a woman by the name of Lisa. And Lisa, has, she and her lover decided to rub out her husband. 
oh, about 27, 28 years ago. He showed this because it made national news, an egregious act against her father was a federal judge. She had two uncles that were attorneys. It's like, how did this happen? She became estranged from her father and not talked to her father for years. When she started the program at Rockhurst, she wrote to her father and told him that she was now pursuing college and thought he'd like to know that. And would he be open to, he wrote to her, they reconnected. He wrote to me, thanked me, sent a little contribution for the program wow. and said, we are now engaged one another. I'm very proud of her and thank you for bringing us together. And six months later, he died. He died with being a consultant. So yeah, more and more stories like that and just good people who are inviting us to transformation and recognizing that, wow, we're in this together. We're all part of Jesuit education. And we say that Jesuit education is about transformation. But as we know, and as being professors, you don't impose that transformation. The students, it's mutual transformation. We journey together. Uh, so I may have misunderstood, but you mentioned Please. earlier about working with staff as well. Does that mean yes. that prison yes. staff also take courses? Yes, but they're a separate cohort. That was something that St. Louis University started and was passed on to us and said, hey, you might want to give this some thought because there is a tendency sometimes when you do such things in prisons, folks will say, oh, there's another giveaway, another thing we're doing here. A good way to grease the skids here, yes. I've been offering a cohort for the staff who are underpaid or overworked. Let's invite folks to this opportunity and they embrace it and it works. We had a, one of the staff tell me at, in Chillicothe saying, I love this course, but I love more so what it's done for me in my relationship with some of the people I serve. There's a couple of the women here that I've had significant issues with. Now we help one another with homework and we hold one another accountable for assignments. Could we ask for anything more of our students? Yeah, it's a good thing to just say, it's, a, it's an exercise in recognizing someone's human dignity. Do you, have you or others offering this program, these courses received pushback from people involved in the system? And if so, I, how have you responded to that? Or are you basically really received with open arms as it were? So when you come to the Department of Corrections, you need to be mindful of, okay, so we're coming from Regis or Fordham or Marquette or Rockhurst, right? And we're in the business of education. You're encountering a the business of security. Right. That's their right. business, right? And you may say, I don't like it. That's their business, right? And so everything we want to do, it's not, oh gosh, yeah. Like, no, we have protocol. I have to follow security. Over time, it gets easier. When we first went to the facility in Missouri, you're going to do this, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do this. Well, now there's relationships. We have relationships with the warden. We have relationships with the staff. And so when we say, hey, can we bring in this? Can we bring, do a film crew? Can we bring in these things from labs to show? When we first started, no way. Now we have a reputation and there's a trust there. And certainly we need to be concerned about security, but they also recognize we can partner in that. 
right? We like to use such things as an, an LMS, right? Whether it sits Blackboard or Canvas or whatever. Those LMS, these management systems are used in correctional facilities, lanterns and some of those, but they're very basic. Right. Uh, you have limited in terms of way you can do that because they don't have access to the internet, right? So if you want to have a particular section of a film, let's say, or a video or some portion, you have to copy that. You have to film that film and place it on that LMS. So you just have to be creative. And a lot of your education is pencil paper. There are right. some things you can bring in. How did We had a professor, Dr. Mary Hastings in Rutgers, she did a, an environmental biology class and bringing things in. You know, how do we do that? And then I went up with my students from the Catholic social teaching and we did a session together where we both considered La Dato Si. In oh, terms of the that's cool. Yeah, it was. And so to have the folks there saying, I'm much more aware of the environment, the, how we use resources, how I use water, how I use trash around here, the, my, my carbon footprint, right? And this commitment of, so there's just so much we can do and be creative. When the pandemic came. I was going to ask you, because oh that must have been a yeah, real interruption. It really was. And the students in our, in our campuses, and I like to say campuses, I know that's a, the no-no in terms of accrediting pieces when you start another campus. But I say, okay, our, I call our residential students right at another facility. We want to teach these classes. I'm sorry, you're not getting in during the pandemic can't do that. And the students said, please don't stop the classes. Please don't stop the classes. And we couldn't get in. And so the prisons basically said, mail it to us and we'll turn it into a correspondence course. I said, we're not doing that. They said, oh yes, you are doing that. I said, no, we're not doing that. So I oh, went to our IT department and said, how can we get around this? And as we brought on Zoom, so went to them and said, would you consider if we provided a couple of eyeball cameras and some okay. screens there, we could teach the course virtually on our campus. And they could, and they said, yes. And so now we are able to have this additional way of providing because it's a challenge for a professor to drive two hours to teach for three, then teach for another three, and then to drive back to. That's a real that's a genuinely huge commitment. It is a huge commitment for yeah, a professor. But now, gosh, let's consider this. What if you were able to do the course by way of Zoom and they maybe once or twice a semester went up to the facility? And let's add another little wrinkle here. Let's do the class on campus with students on campus and then bring the students up as well and have a combined session a couple of times. We did that. That is. That's amazing. So you have some students on the campus that also functions as a incarceration facility and some students on the traditional That's campus. Right. Absolutely. Amazing. But to also, say I took I'm, this course together. So uh, there's a one of your neighbors has a different model, Manhattan College, Andrew Scott Nicky. Andrew for over 10 years has been taking students over to Rikers Island for classes. Yes. Right. And I went with Andrew in his class this past fall. We went to Rikers and had the class here. There's 10 of his students, 10 of the students from Rikers. Can you talk a little bit about what you would consider to be a success at the mm -hmm. student level? So you mentioned before in a couple of anecdotes about a student who's thriving intellectually and academically who will never leave prison. That's right. And then the odd statistic of 
if a person leaves prison and desists for mm -hmm. years, that that's success. Do you have other measures that you would share about what a successful participant in, in sure. this program would be? What's the data behind those who are released? So the data behind those who are released is that they are up to 50% less likely to commit another crime with education. And that, that's pretty hard and fast. You know, it's just shy of 50% with some education there, less likely to commit a crime. So it reduces the reach savings. So then what are we doing statistically? Or what are we? what's the success, I should say? What's the success? What are the success stories for those who remain behind? I'll share this story. So we have a couple of students in our facilities who are getting ready to complete their degree work. And then it's, okay, what else is there for me? We have the model of teaching assistants. Would you be willing to hang on? Oh, wow. Teaching That's assistant and say, yes, I would. So I, I think there's ways that we have continuing education. If you want to, is the folks who are released, that's, that's, a, that's a big investment for us. If we're going to get an incredible return on that. And those who stay behind, let's continue to educate so that they can help the others. So I am keep coming back to your idea of a kind of humanistic approach in a system where the staff and the residents are brutalized, right? They're made brutal. Yes, yes. Right. And so that if we look at both a process and an outcomes orientation for mm -hmm. measuring success, that we think about education as a process of transformation, that perhaps some of those transformations are deeply internal and invisible. Mm -hmm. And we symbolize them with the garments, the rituals. Yes. Okay. But ultimately, some of those transformations are just, they affect how I see myself in the world. And the project maybe then is to create opportunities where I can enact those transformations, where I can be different, not just feel different. And so I think it has a lot to do with what you're describing as not just transforming the participants, the teachers, but the context in which they operate so yes. that they can en enact those kind of changes in ways that are meaningful. Does that make sense? I think you've captured it beautifully, yes. So really, what is it we're trying to create here is a community of mutual respect, of shared humanity, of that affirms as well as challenges one another to, to move towards the end for which we've been created. When you think about a, a person that you mentioned in, in your anecdotes who did this awful thing and through participation in, in your shared project is now transformed. And it can realistically be seen by others and himself as a scholar. Yes. But yet I in this place, most likely, will never leave. And so how do we begin to think about that as a success story, which you clearly do because you've relayed those anecdotes as deeply meaningful. And I think sometimes we get lost in exit competencies and measures and like test scores and degree and credit accumulation. And I don't say that to devalue those things or they're really important, but there are aspects of what we do as teachers and learners that are, they're not reducible to quantitative data. They're just different in some way. And that doesn't render them less meaningful. No, I, I, absolutely. To your point about we speak so much about process and outcome. What is it we desire? I think another question about that part of that is that how ought we to live? 
how are we to live together? So much of education has a way of softening and humanizing, forming. And that's why I think this is so meaningful to folks who teach in, in, in the prisons, because they say, this reminds me why I got into the business. We always close out our conversations by asking our guests to tell us about a teacher who's been meaningful in their lives. So I'm wondering if you have such a person in your life that you'd like to lift up and share a story about him or her. Well, gosh, I don't know. I think back in grade school, um, there was a nun, Sister Rosaire, who just really opened me up to areas of study that I just never thought about. She taught science and taught music. Just someone who really says, no, this is worth considering. Think of teachers in high school and college, but I guess in, in law school, there were two professors, Dr. Ray Marson and Dr. David Granfield of Benedict, and they just really the way to contextualize things, the way to just to, to really dissect things into manageable questions. How do we frame the question? Right? So I think that's really, so there are two pieces of it. The teachers that have gotten me consider areas that I didn't, wasn't inclined to, and then the teachers who help you to distill things into the questions. And that's so much a part of our gestural way of proceeding, right? It's not about the content, but the questions upon the questions. How do we frame it? How do we frame it? So that. that's beautiful. The questions on the questions. Yeah, yes. so. Thank you both for this. I hope it's really, it really so wonderful. Much. Yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Twice Over Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.